Okay, um, hi everyone, my name is Enting and today I'm going to be talking a little bit about uh, social justice in debates. So this is primarily going to be a sharing about social justice movements, uh, how movements form, what movements want, how we can characterize movements and talk about the trade-offs that movements usually have to make when they are um, deciding on what strategy to pursue. So a couple of things before we actually start. Um, Here's the standard dis debate disclaimer. Uh, the views I discuss in this workshop may not represent my actual beliefs. Um, this workshop is meant to provide an overview of social movements, but the discussions that we're going to have may be simplified or truncated due to the amount of time that we have, because uh, this obviously uh, learning about social movements is a huge issue. Uh, people literally do PhDs in this and spend their whole lives organizing. So there is no way I can actually cover all of it in one short workshop. Uh, what I do want to say, however, is that there are many different ways to conceptualize, characterize and debate about movements. So this is by no means a comprehensive uh, discussion of what it's going to be, but rather it's going to be a set of general guidelines that might be helpful for people to think of when they think about social justice movements and when they actually have debates about movements. Um, the last thing to note here is that because these are general guidelines, um, these are just questions that you should be thinking about when you are debating about social justice movements, you do still have to tailor them quite closely to whatever um, debate you are going to have. And you have to ensure that you are capturing the nuances of whatever specific movement you are going to be speaking about. So here is a quick overview of what I am going to uh, discuss today. Um, the first thing I'm going to do is talk a little bit about uh, how we can characterize movements and how movements themselves frame whatever problems they have. The second thing I'm going to be talking about are strategies that are commonly used by movements and what the trade-offs for movements are when they are deciding on what strategy to use. And the last thing I'm going to look at is the question of representation within the movement. So looking at questions like leadership, who gets to speak for the movement, who gets to be in the movement, how far we should include allies and what kinds of trade-offs we are making there. Um, all of that is going to be covered under representation. And um, if you have any questions, please feel free to type them um, in the in the chat. And I feel like at the end of it, I will try and look for the questions and then address the questions. Okay, so moving on to the first thing, which is movements. What exactly are movements and how can we characterize movements within social justice debates? Uh, a quick definition of a movement, and this is quite a bare bones definition of what movements are. Uh, at the most basic level, a social movement is an organized effort by a large number of people to either bring about or to impede social change. So they are a form of collective action. And by collective action, I mean, uh, it is a group of people who share a common outlook on society and they have a common agenda that they are pushing for. They don't necessarily have anything else in common. So for example, an environmental movement can be constituted of people from all walks of life. They might not necessarily have anything in common with each other, other than their care for the movement, uh, the care for the environment and the preservation of the environment. Okay, so you'll notice that something that is excluded from this uh, point form list of definitions is that it says nothing about whether a movement is progressive 
or conservative. Social movements usually respond to situations of injustice or inequality, and these are the type of groups that we normally debate about. So some examples of these groups are the uh, feminist movement, the Occupy Wall Street movement, the environmental movement, anti-colonialist movements, or racial justice movements. Um, all of these movements uh, are, are quite prominent, and we usually and, and they are very progressive, which is why we tend to believe that most movements are actually progressive. Um, but it's also important to note that there are conservative social movements as well. Either they are seeking to preserve the status quo, so this is usually in response to progressive movements, or they are advancing a conservative cause. So for example, um, ethno-nationalist or religious movements. These two actually often overlap. Um, because it is entirely likely that you have movements that are advancing a conservative cause in response to a progressive movement. So it's very important to not just believe that all movements are necessarily liberal or progressive. There are lots of conservative movements as well, and that is important to keep in mind. But because most debates are going to be about progressive social movements, we will focus on discussing those. Um, I think the easiest way to think about a social movement is as a reaction against the normative order. So social movements seek to negotiate with or to disrupt or to challenge existing norms, laws, and institutions. This is usually in response to an inequality in the distribution of rights, capital, or power. And as previously mentioned, there is collectivization, meaning the people within the movement will share some kind of similar goal and will identify to varying extents with their cause. And from here on, I'm going to refer to these people as members of the movement. Okay, so that's broadly speaking what a movement is. How can we categorize social movements to make them easier to think about if we're working from the, uh, if we're only talking about progressive movements? Um, okay, so I think we can generally classify progressive social movements into two types based on what they identify as the main problem and therefore the scope of the change that they're advocating for. The first type, as you can see on screen, is a reformative social movement. So reformative social movements identify the problem as being individual or policy level, and they try to work within the system in order to achieve positive outcomes for their group. So they might use the legal system to promote their ideas and to challenge unfair laws, and they usually avoid the use of violence. They usually use things like marches or sit-ins or demonstrations or strikes in order to push for change within the system, and they are usually quite common in democracies because democracies guarantee freedom of speech, freedom of assembly, and they have space for political participation. So for example, the movement to obtain marriage rights and benefits for same-sex couples is an example of working within the system. It doesn't, dismant it doesn't seek to dismantle the institution of marriage, um, which a lot of movements actually argue is problematic. So that's an example of trying to reform it, so to make the institution of marriage more inclusive rather than trying to dismantle the institution altogether. Um, similarly, the lean-in movement is a movement that tries to empower individual women to express themselves, but it does not consider the ways in which corporate and capitalist structures might be patriarchal and skewed against women. It's a movement that works within capitalist structures and within corporate structures in order to advance women. It doesn't seek to dismantle these kinds of structures altogether. So both of these are what we would classify as reformative, meaning they are within a system rather than outside of a system. 
The second type of movement that you can think of is a revolutionary system, meaning it's a social movement that doesn't actually work within the system. It identifies the system itself as the problem. So it, it says that the system can't be fixed with surface level changes. So the solution is to get rid of the system entirely and replace it with a better system. So the obvious examples of revolutionary social movements are political revolutionary groups that seek to change governmental or political structures. So you can think of communist revolutions in Asia and Southeast Asia, or you can think of the Iranian revolution against the Shah, as well as just many types of political revolutions that just seek to replace one governmental structure with another. You can also consider movements that seek to overthrow our current economic model, which is capitalism. Um, and these can also work in tandem with other social movements. So for example, Marxist feminism is a social movement which identifies the main problem facing women as being capitalist exploitation in terms of the undervaluation of domestic work and emotional labor, in terms of the responsibility of reproductive labor, in terms of wages, things like that. So for Marxist feminists, um, women's liberation can only be achieved if you dismantle first the capitalist systems in which much of women's labor is uncompensated. So it doesn't just say we need women to lean into the system and advocate for higher wages within the system, or we need women to advocate for promotions within the system. It's actually pushing to reconsider the capitalist system altogether, which is why it's working from outside the system rather than from within the system. Okay, so how do these two like categories of social movements work against each other or together? Okay, so revolutionary social movements tend to be a bit critical of uh, reformatory social movements, which they see as only addressing surface level issues without really fixing the root of the problem. So to go back to the example of Marxist feminism, Marxist feminists may be critical of feminist movements, which focus on the empowerment of individual women without unpacking how underlying social structures uh, and values disadvantage women. So they think it's not a sustainable or long-run solution if they just work within the system instead of outside the system altogether. So why is it important to um, consider whether you're talking about a reformative system or a revolutionary system? Um, simply because how the movement frames the problem is going to affect what solutions they choose. So depending on whether they frame the problem as an individual level or a system level problem, the solutions they choose are going to be quite different because of the different levels on which this problem operates. So for example, if you are in a debate round and you're trying to justify pure Marxist revolution, obviously you will then realize that this is a revolutionary thing and you are going to categorize the problem as being a system level problem. And that's where a lot of your analysis and characterization would be directed. But on the other hand, if you're trying to justify something like taxing women less in comparison to men, you will characterize the problem as being on an individual and policy level. So a problem with things like wage gaps and individual biases, rather than with the problem of capitalism as a whole. So that's pretty important. Same goes if you're trying to argue that the feminist movement should be recruiting conservative women or encouraging women to not wear makeup or to get individual women to reject acts of chivalry. All of these are things about working within the system. So you will also want to frame the problem as being something that can be solved on an individual level. 
Um, so the takeaway from this is that when you characterize movements and their aims in debate rounds, it may be helpful to consider first what exactly you think the problem is and if it's a problem that can be solved from working within the system or if it's a problem with the system itself and therefore needs to be solved from working outside of the system or by trying to overturn the system altogether. Okay, so the next thing I'm going to talk about um, are the various strategies that movements can adopt, the justifications between, behind these kinds of strategies and the trade-offs that movements have to make when they are making these kinds of decisions. Okay, so when movements select strategies, they need to consider a couple of things. Um, they need to consider how effective a strategy is in achieving a specific outcome while also considering whether or not the strategy or proposed solution actually adequately represents the interests of its members. This is the trade-off between effectiveness and ideological purity, and generally that is usually some kind of trade-off between these two things. Why? Um, so if you go back to our original definition of a movement, um, a movement is a challenge against the normative social order. That is to say, it seeks to change the existing society in some way in order to rectify some kind of inequality or injustice. So it becomes evident if we think about movements in this way, that people will be resistant to this challenge. If they are not actually resistant, the movement would not necessarily need to exist because the changes would already have been implemented. So why is it exactly that people are resistant to changes? And I think it's very important to be able to articulate these reasons um, while you are actually discussing um, why, why movements should do things a certain way. Um, so sometimes people are resistant because they genuinely don't realize that a problem exists. So for example, if you think of streetlights, um, to men, streetlights might be an issue of public infrastructure or an issue of public utilities. But for many women, streetlights might be an issue of public safety instead. So there, there, is, there is an instance where your experiential gaps tend to lead to knowledge gaps as well. And even if you have information on statistics, you are unlikely to care as much uh, unless you are part of the group. So there might be a knowledge gap and an experiential gap that means people are averse to accepting the demands of a movement. The second reason is that very few people think of themselves as privileged. Um, it's always nicer to believe that you've worked very hard and that's why you've achieved whatever societal outcome you've had. So basically people don't really like accepting the rather uncomfortable truth that some of what they have may be undeserved and, as, and, and a result of structural um, privilege as opposed to a result of their hard work. And the last reason why people might be averse to accepting movements is simply that changing a societal structure can feel very threatening to a person in a position of privilege because it might feel like it is very zero-sum and that any increase in the position of one group will lead to a decrease in your own position uh, as a member of a different group. So those are all the reasons why people might be averse to supporting movements and might push back against movements that try to change things from the status quo. Okay, so what does this mean for movements? Um, it just kind of means there's always this kind of very delicate negotiation that social movements need to engage in. For activists in most movements, 
they are unlikely to actually have total victory, meaning that it's very unfeasible to expect that their movement is going to totally destroy its opponents. Therefore, for most movements, what they try to do is they try to improve their bargaining position so that the outcome of negotiation and compromise between their group and the rest of society leads to a favorable outcome for the members of the movement. And if they want to achieve the best results possible, activists and movements might need to actually um, see the situation a little bit from the perspective of their opponents in order to avoid actions that will increase resistance rather than decrease it. Meaning they do need to find some way to appeal to members who are not already in the movement if they hope to be maximally effective. Okay. So this means that these particular movements might make the strategic decision to engage in more conformist strategies rather than in more radical and confrontational strategies. And what do I mean by conformist strategies? I really mean that they are likely, these movements that engage in conformist strategies are very likely to, um, to soften their rhetoric, to avoid attributing blame and to avoid calling out people. And they're likely to focus on advocating for goals that are more palatable to be majority population. And they might emphasize the similarities between members of the movement and the majority population instead of focusing on the differences. So for example, the phrase love is love, which was used to characterize the LGBT community as being just like everybody else, but focusing on the feelings, right? These people love who they love, who cares about it. So this was one of the strategies that was used to try and advance the LGBT movement in the mainstream. And I will um, discuss this strategy a little bit later when, this, when contrasting it to other strategies. So when making arguments okay, about how conformist strategies are effective, so it's very important to explain the logic behind why people are currently averse to movements and then identify which demographics you expect these conformist strategies to appeal to. Like, obviously, you wouldn't expect everybody to immediately accept the movement in question. And you can definitely accept that neither side will ever convince hardcore racists or hardcore homophobes or just people who hold extremely strong views in any direction. So, but I think you can point out that most people that you are trying to convince have strong status quo biases and find certain societal changes to be very jarring or threatening because certain changes tend to be associated with instability or uncertainty. So they are probably already more likely to be amenable to a conformist strategy rather than to a radical strategy. Um, and the people you're trying to convince are also probably in most cases well-meaning or they like to think of themselves as well-meaning. So giving them a basic message that highlights an easy to accomplish goal can also help people feel that they can help the movement without sacrificing too much. So you can argue that a movement and a campaign that remains conformist and it appeals to some kind of similarity between both groups is likely to get at least some buy-in from the mainstream who now feel a kind of affinity to this group. And this positive narrative and increased buy-in from the mainstream could also nudge politicians to be more willing to lend their support to the movement, which could open up huge benefits for members of this group. So I think we do have lots of debates which ask you to argue for conformist strategies or for emphasizing similarities to the mainstream. 
rather than differences. And these are some of the reasons that you can consider where you are discussing why people should focus and emphasize on similarities because it's more effective in convincing people that they should care about your movement and you're probably more likely to sway some demographics of people. Okay, so what's the problem here? Uh, the danger with a strategy that emphasizes similarities and attempts to conform or to assimilate in order to gain supporters uh, might actually compromise or concede too much. And if they do so, this will dilute the message of the movement and it will dilute the actual amount of benefit that the movement is able to provide to its members. So if we go back to the example of love is love for the LGBT movement that I was discussing earlier, well, this strategy should probably be credited with having some persuasive value and for providing reassurance to individuals who take comfort in this. Um, it has also been criticized for being overly simplistic and overly pandering to the majority instead of advancing the full diversity of the LGBT movement. So um, having said that, let me move on to uh, the, the, the ways you can question conformist strategies and argue instead for emphasizing differences. I think there are three broad categories of response to um, arguments about conformist strategies. Um, the first is to question the selected area of focus. The second is to question the purpose of the movement. And the third is to question what the movement's long-term direction and who the movement's purported allies should be. Uh, okay, so to some extent these questions like they just overlap with each other and there are concerns that arise with any strategy that that depend on what's commonly known as respectability politics right the idea that various marginalized groups should portray their personal social values as being continuous and comp compatible with dominant values without challenging the mainstream so these are just concerns that will arise with pretty much any um politics that requires you to conform and to uh, minimize your differences in order to fit in Okay, so the first um, concern with the narrative, all right, is that is, is whether, whether this kind of narrative goes far enough and whether it prioritizes a certain set of concerns while crowding out other concerns. So if we use the um, marriage equality example uh, here, um, there the, the was a concern at this point that the marriage that pushing for marriage equality as an LGBT movement actually crowded out other concerns such as being free from violence and harassment or being able to um, live in public without having one's identity mocked or questioned. So it might actually lead people to believe that the problems faced by members of the group have already been solved when in actuality the problems faced by members are much more complex. So this is an argument that tries to claim that other goals that the movement is pushing for are as if not more important and that these other goals get crowded out where you focus on something that is extremely palatable to the majority. Because the moment you focus on something that a majority finds easy to accept, it can actually uh, prevent you from bringing in other more uncomfortable truths because the majority thinks that the most palatable problem is a problem that the movement is focusing on rather than all of these other kinds of problems. Okay, so the other question is what, what, what the purpose of the movement should be. So someone opposing the love is love narrative might also claim that the movements need to prioritize celebrating and reclaiming differences from the mainstream because the differences are just as valuable as the similarities to the mainstream. So this might look more like the LGBT movement in the 60s, which openly celebrated and affirmed sexual differences. So the criticism here is that trying to hide or trying to minimize traits that 
that differentiate groups from the mainstream is subconsciously buying into dominant majoritarian views about what is and is not shameful or accepted. And this is bad because it reinforces the social norms that you are trying to fight against. So while you might win some rights in certain aspects, you don't actually change the majority's worldview altogether, which is what you should probably try to do as a social movement. Um, and another criticism is that maybe the primary aim of social movements should be to provide a safe space where members can feel comfortable expressing themselves rather than having broader goals of integration and assimilation. So really just trying to protect the members of the movements directly rather than just trying to change the minds of people who might not be open to having their minds changed. So the last question um, is questioning what the movements like allies should be and who the what the long-term direction is. So this, this strategy of assimilating and conforming uh, might be criticized as being overly dependent on very fickle allies, right? Because people who only support the movement, if the movement aligns with majoritarian values or majoritarian characteristics, are likely to withdraw their support once the movement tries to push for recognition of more distinctive characteristics, or if the movement tries to push for something that is less palatable or less easy for the mainstream. So this can actually diminish the movement's effectiveness in the long run, which will be especially harmful if this strategy also deprioritizes more pressing issues like safety for members within the movement. Okay, so those are the those are the broad arguments for and against conformist strategies. Of course, these will change slightly depending on what movement you are talking about. But I hope that these broad guidelines will help you um, think about some of the trade-offs that are being made here and also help you in generating arguments for whatever specific movement you are debating about. Okay, so the other movement strategy that is often discussed in debate land is the use of violence. Um, and in some ways, this fits into this discussion about the use of radical and confrontational strategies versus more conformist ones. Okay, so violence is definitely an extremely confrontational strategy. Uh, and it can be considered at the opposite end of the spectrum from these conformist strategies that we were uh, talking about. So I think the first thing I want to do is to just separate violence from civil disobedience and uh, before talking about violence in the context of movement. So civil disobedience usually refers to nonviolent uh, resistance to laws carried out collectively and in public. And it can include the disruption of roads and public spaces through boycotts, marches, and strikes. And one example of this is Fridays for Future, which is a, a movement for school strikes um, in order to push for greater climate action. It's the one led by Greta Thunberg. So that's an example of civil disobedience. I want to talk now about um, Defending the use of violence, because violence and organized forcible resistance and militant action usually lie further outside the realm of tolerated political action than civil disobedience. So how can we defend the use of violence in the context of movements? I think this has been a, a motion that, that, comes, that comes up quite frequently as well. Um, it's also quite pertinent given, given the current political context. Okay, so I think the first thing that debaters need to do is to recognize that there is a distinction between a right and an effective strategy. And there is a distinction between saying people should commit political violence and that they have a right to do so or that it is legitimate for them to do so. Um, it's entirely possible, and in fact, it's highly likely that the use of violence will cause the movement to lose supporters. But at the same time, the movement may still have the 
right to exercise violence. And so this rights versus effectiveness trade-off is a trade-off that debaters must be willing to defend if they want to defend talking about violence in the context of political movements. Okay, so violence is normally thought of as being morally incompatible with politics. But a common sense argument for political violence being acceptable responds to this assumption by extending principles of the individual right to self-defense to the context of individuals versus the state. So the relationship between individuals and the government or the government structures. The right to self-defense applies to all individuals. So it stands to reason it should also apply to those who are peacefully resisting injustice. If they are threatened with wrongful violence, you could argue that they also have a moral right to self-defense. So how do we make the self-defense argument for movements? Well, to make this argument, you need to first establish that there has been a harm that's perpetrated by the state. And, in, and this is quite easy to do. Because in most countries, uh, the state has a monopoly on violence. And in many cases, the state wields violence with impunity. It imposes undue violence on its subjects, most often on its minority subjects. It wrongfully convicts and imprisons people. It requires people to risk their own lives fighting unjust wars. Uh, it allows people to die when they could have been saved. Uh, it beats and sometimes kills people who, who have done nothing to warrant being beaten or being killed. Um, in any one given year, more than 1% of American adults, which is 2.5 million individuals, are put in jail, and nearly 5 million more are put on parole or probation or are awaiting trial, even though most of them are actually charged with nonviolent crimes. Okay, so what, what, what do we do with all of this information? I think you use it to point out that systemic violence is a deliberate solution imposed by the state. It's not a problem that is an abuse of power by a single individual. These problems that I've listed just all occur due to the structures of states and institutions, due to the criminal justice system, due to the system of punishment that we've set up, all of that. So the state cannot actually absolve itself of complicity in the violence by claiming that violence is an aberration. It can actually be argued, and it probably should be argued, that violence is built directly into these structures and laws of the state. So the argument for legitimate violence starts from the premise that individuals have a right to self-defense against this kind of wrongful harm by the state. And the right to self-defense is often constrained by necessity and by proportionality. So we can use violence to defend ourselves if there are no alternative means of defense, and we shouldn't use disproportionate like force in our response. So don't stab somebody who is trying to pickpocket you, basically. Um, and how might this apply to the state? Well, we've already established that the state often systematically oppresses the various groups under their rule. And in many of these states, the rule of law is absent and there is no meaningful recourse to the courts to prevent or to seek accountability for abuses. And instead, the legal system perpetuates these problems and facilitates the state in its violent behavior. So consider, for example, the African National Congress in South Africa establishing an armed wing to fight apartheid. Um, in this context, apartheid involved forced exile and relocation, uh, restrictions on freedom of movement, speech and assembly, extrajudicial killings, uh, torture, degrading treatment, and labor exploitation. And the legal system within this context actually supported the white minority's hold on politics and governments. So in this and in similar cases, violence might very well be the only option on the grounds of necessary self-defense. 
Because when the state, which has a monopoly on violence, is imposing this violence on you, you need to you need to be able to have some way to protect yourself, especially when all other options have already been tried and have already been exhausted. So it's probably important to note at this point that most protesters are very aware that violence tends to lead to crackdowns and greater repression by the state. And they very rarely start out using violence. And in most cases, they only resort to violence when the state uses increasingly forceful measures to shut protests down. So in this case, the self-defense argument becomes a bit more immediate because you are not just being violently hurt by these structures of the state, but the state itself is sending out people to violently shut your movement or violently shut your protest down. So to give you an example of this, um, protesters in Hong Kong have grown increasingly violent only after the police began using um, excessive force on both peaceful protesters as well as bystanders. So this is a case of very immediate self-defense, not just against structures, but against people who are uh, uh, trying to hurt you in a very tangible sense. Okay, the other thing to note is that this argument doesn't discuss the outcomes of violence, nor does it and it doesn't claim that using violence is strategic. Instead, it just claims that there is a right to use violence regardless of whether or not protesters choose to exercise that right. But of course, there are arguments as well about the effectiveness of using violence as a strategy. Um, in many cases, the use of violence has actually been very effective in forcing regime change. Um, so many cases that were celebrate, uh, many cases um, of successful um, revolutions, like the Egypt's Arab Spring protests and Ukraine's Maidan movement, were actually they had significant. Um, anti-police violence that led security forces to desert or to abandon the regime. And that's really important because it means that you are reducing the amount of force the state is able to bring to bear on the rest of the protests or the rest of the movement. It reduces the state's monopoly on force in a sense. Another example is that in Chile, uh, protesters' willingness to fight with police and burn buildings in addition to other non-violent tactics helped ac actually helped push the government to make serious concessions to the protest movement. And uh, in Bolivia, protester violence actually pushed the president, President Morales, to step down amid the unhappiness with his ignoring the results of a referendum and the allegations of electoral fraud. So it's just not true that violent protests never succeed. In many cases, violent protests can be very effective, especially when they are targeting the state security forces, because it might mean that these security forces no longer have an incentive to stay with the state because it now directly affect their personal safety. So it's very likely they're going to defect, especially if the violence is specifically directed towards them. And if they think the state's going to lose and the protest is effective, they will step down instead of incurring any further losses to their own lives. Another argument is that violence doesn't only challenge the um it doesn't only challenge like state security forces it also challenges the state's appearance of control as well as the legitimacy of their monopoly on force which can actually help empower certain protesters or certain groups because when the state is attacked right when the state 
when there is a violent protest that directly attacks state institutions, it stops appearing invulnerable. It starts looking like it can be attacked because it has been. And this could have a psychological effect on groups who often feel powerless because they are threatened, intimidated, and isolated by the state. And these feelings of powerlessness are often exacerbated by peaceful protests which do not lead to tangible outcomes. So violent protests may actually help change this because it shows that it shows two things. It shows that the state can be attacked, and it also shows that there are a large number of people who are willing to undertake personal risks to their safety and security in order to fight for change. So even when a cause seems hopeless, fighting back might actually give protesters a sense of agency um, rather than suffering in the hope of a hypothetical change in the future, which they might not be alive to see because who knows when this hypothetical change is going to come. So you could also think of this as a way of combating um, activist fatigue or of psychologically empowering individuals who feel that the cause of fighting against the state is helpless, uh, hopeless because now you have shown with a violent attack that the state can indeed be hurt and it's not invulnerable. Um, another argument is that violent protests help bring urgency to a particular issue, which forces individuals to pay attention to and to engage with discussions. And it also draws the attention of the international community, which prompts international and external pressure on the state itself. So for example, um, outcry over the unlawful and inhumane killing of George Floyd has gone international. There are anti-racist protests taking place in Amsterdam, Berlin, and London, among other European cities. And there are also some protests in Nigeria, in Kenya, and several other cities in Israel, Australia, and New Zealand. So quite a wide, a large number of countries that have been actually affected um, by how, how urgent the issue was. So that's also an important thing to think about because it forces individuals to actually pay attention to the issue rather than allowing the issue to simply uh, die out. Okay. The, the last argument that's quite commonly used is that uh, Many is that violent resistance makes change faster because violent wings of the movement make non-violent wings of the movement seem more moderate, which in turn makes the state more willing to engage with them. So this is because many movements just have a mix of non-violent mass protests and more violent and radical flanks that are engaged in collective violence. And the idea is that if one looks more radical, the state is more likely to engage with the more centrist, non-violent one. Okay, so the evidence for this is actually very mixed empirically, uh, but in some cases, when protesters are viewed as justified or the state is viewed as illegitimate, the selective use of violence might actually bolster support for the protests. And crucially, in more authoritarian settings, it might not actually be possible to stage a sustained protest without some degree of violence resistance to security forces who would otherwise sweep protesters off the streets. Okay, so that's about defending the use of violence um, when it comes to protest movements. The next thing I want to talk about is how we, um, how in debates you argue against the use of violence or you argue that violence is bad when it comes to social justice movements. Um, the thing to note here is that arguing against the use of violence in movements usually focuses on disproving the efficacy of violence and arguing that non-violent protests are more effective rather than on claiming that a right to self-defense does not exist. 
Um, it might be that both violent protests and non-violent protests are equally legitimate, but it might still be more effective to employ non-violence if you can get everything that you would get from a violent protest using a non-violent protest. Maybe this is something that you want to consider instead in terms of movement strategy. Okay, so what are the plausible effects of violence on protests? Uh, first of all, the use of violence is likely to alienate supporters. So this is very similar to the earlier discussion that we had about ideological purity versus confrontation. Using disruptive tactics, which includes violence, um, often entails making a trade-off. Although they can bring greater um, efficacy sometimes to protest goals, it's also likely that they can undermine the perceived legitimacy of the protest. Uh, and this is really dependent on how people, how, how, what, what the respondents' predispositions to the movements are. Meaning, if you have core supporters who will always support the movement, they will not be affected by a movement's use of violence. They will support the movement no matter what. But on the other extreme, if you have weak supporters, or you have people who oppose the movement, or you have non-aligned citizens, these groups are all likely to reduce their support when violence is used within a movement. Um, it also allows opponents of the movement to condemn the whole movement, even if the movement's use of force is careful and targeted. And the rhetoric of this movement is violent might actually in turn alienate more supporters, which will lose the movement even more allies apart from the core supporters. On the converse, meaning where we're looking at peaceful movements, peaceful uh, these people, uh, when you have peaceful movements, you are more likely to get mass, broad-based participation, which is really important to things like movement success. And movements that rely primarily on non-violent tactics usually tend to enjoy more diverse participation, which also leads to a number of political advantages. So when you are arguing against the use of violence, you also want to consider what advantages non-violent protests have, meaning you don't just argue that violent protests are likely to drive away certain groups of supporters, you also want to back it up by claiming that non-violent movements are able to attract a larger group of supporters as well. Of course, the question here is, does the movement care about losing the, the group of fringe supporters? It, it might actually feel as a movement that it's better to target the core constituency of the movement rather than pander to majoritarian allies. And the extent to which allies are lost also depends on the perceived legitimacy of the state and the movement, because if the state is seen as illegitimate anyway, then it's likely that people are more, then people are just more likely to support the movement, even if they use violence. So you lose fewer supporters in this case. And like I discussed earlier in terms of making the trade-offs about movement efficacy and um, ideological purity, maybe you don't even care that you are losing some of your less devoted supporters. Maybe you think as a movement that these supporters, if they cannot support you through very justified violence, would not be very useful to you as supporters anyway. So you would rather focus on the people that are willing to support you through the use of violence as well. Okay, so you might also want to argue that nonviolent campaigns are more likely to succeed because the use of violence tends to prioritize certain groups of people over others. So nonviolent movements can recruit participants from a really broad demographic um, and they can do things like protests or sit-ins or strikes, which will have a really huge impact on normal life and the functioning of society. But violent protests 
necessarily exclude some people. So obviously it would exclude people who are very much against violence and against bloodshed. That group of people is automatically cut out of the movement at the point that it engages in violent protests, whereas non-violent movements can still co-opt this group of people. But more importantly, um, non-violent protests also have fewer barriers to participation. And I'm talking about fewer physical barriers because protester violence disproportionately empowers young people who are able-bodied and also usually empowers men within those movements. Obviously, there are exceptions to this, but generally, um, children or the youth or elderly people or women or people with disabilities tend to be sidelined when protester violence escalates. So a move towards embracing protester violence might actually crowd out these people as well while generating sympathy for their opponents. So that's also something to consider when you want to think about who can be included within a violent movement, not just who you might drive away. Okay. By engaging like broad-based support across the population, nonviolent movements are also more likely to win support among the police and the military. It's actually possible. Um, so this claim directly counters the claim that strategic anti-police violence leads security forces to desert or abandon the regime. Okay, so during a peaceful street protest of millions of people, members of security forces might actually fear that their family members or that their friends are in the crowd or that they are involved in the movement, meaning they might actually be more wary about cracking down on the movement as a whole. Or maybe when they look at the sheer number of people you are able to bring to a nonviolent movement, because nonviolent movements tend to be able to mobilize more people, um, security forces might just realize that the number of people involved is just so much larger um, than they expected and that it's so likely to succeed that they might abandon the state altogether, just looking at the turnout. So those are two reasons why it might be true that nonviolent protests can actually be effective as well in trying to, uh, try, in trying to effect change. Okay. So the third argument against the use of violence is that violence is likely to invite escalation or retaliation or some kind of collective punishment. So there's an overwhelming consensus that the introduction of violence by protesters um, is typically met with an escalation and an intensification of state violence. Um, and why is this bad? Well, it's, it's, it's just bad because state actors are usually more organized and more militarily powerful than protesters. Um, they usually are better armed, they are better equipped, they have more financial resources, they have body armor. Um, and that means that any kind of violent reprisal from the state is likely to harm or to injure or even kill quite a number of people if violence escalates. Um, the other thing is that protesters are usually condemned as violence. Um, the moment you have any kind of violence at all. So it, justif it allows the state to justify harsher repression of whatever protest of movement there is going on. Um, and in addition to this, state repression almost always targets protesters indiscriminately. So they make no distinction between peaceful protesters and violent participants. So all of this put together means um, violence and the escalation of violence is likely to lead to a significant loss of lives or at the very least a significant number of injuries. So in Hong Kong, for example, um, the police fired tear gas and water cannons at protesters, including those that remain peaceful. So even if some protesters have consented into the risks of increased state repression by opting to use violence, their actions could have severe implications as well 
for the rest of the movement who may not have consented into the escalation of violence. And this widespread indiscriminate nature of state response may actually cause more people to opt out of participating in the movement because they fear their own safety, whereas they would otherwise have participated in peaceful protests where there was less chance or less likelihood of state retaliation or escalation. Okay, and in addition to all of this, if the government is able to suppress the protest without engaging in discussions and negotiations, they might also enact harsher laws in the aftermath of the protest, which might actually stifle long-term change. So for example, um, in 2005, there were riots around Paris, which led to a number of deaths and injuries and arrests. And because the state was militarily more powerful than the protesters, the state responded by imposing a state of emergency, by blaming foreigners for inciting riots, um, issuing an order to deport foreigners convicted of involvement and announcing tighter controls on immigration. So they did all of this without discussing the ethnic and religious tensions and other factors such as unemployment because the because they were able to use their superior power to shut down the movement altogether and they were they were able to justify their actions by pointing out the violence that came from the protests themselves. So this might so this as a strategy might actually impede long-term change if the state resorts to violence to shut down the protest instead of engaging in any kind of sustained negotiation or discussion. Okay, uh, what else? Uh, Nonviolent tactics also allow the movements to create kind of force, it, it allows the, okay, so nonviolent movements allows the movement to clearly paint this police and the state as aggressors. Right? A nonviolent protest where we see states overreacting is a very powerful and sympathetic narrative for the cause of fighting police violence. And the problem here is that when both sides are using violence, there is a tendency for people to muddy the story in a sense, to draw a false equivalence between protesters who are using violence and between the police and the police who are using violence as well. So this false equivalency on the part of the media and the undecided members of the public basically means you end up undermining the interests of the protesters because now everyone is talking about whether it is justified to use violence and talking about looting that's happening or talking about um talking about uh, stores being set on fire. And this is a problem because the media tends to report on these things as a crime that has been committed and you move the discussion away from the frame of combating injustice into a frame of, but are violent protests in and of themselves a crime? And then you allow watchers, you allow viewers to draw an equivalence between both of these things, which means you actually might undermine the effectiveness of the protest movement in the long run. Okay, so the very important thing I want to point out here is that pointing out that these things happen and that these might not be the most effective solutions um, isn't the same as saying protester violence is morally equivalent to state violence, okay? So what I'm saying here is mostly that there are risks in using violence within a movement. And one of those risks is that people will see protest protester violence as being the same as state violence, even if this is not the case. And that has lots of harmful effects for the movement as well. So that brings me to the end of discussing um, the use of violence as a strategy in movements. The last thing I want to talk about is representation within the movement.
Okay, so representation within the movement, to me, these are questions of who should lead, represent, and speak for the movement, as well as questions of the extent to which people from different identity groups should be included within identity-based movements. So this looks a little bit like discussions of having male allies in feminist movements, like the He for She campaign. Um, it looks like talking about whether or not Western feminists should be included in local movements, whether you should include white allies in movements primarily fronted by people of color, We've already talked a little bit about how some strategies, such as using violence, has the side effect of centering able-bodied men at the expense of crowding out others. And these kinds of trade-offs between um, effectiveness and maximal participation really do happen with every single kind of movement. So it's important to just recognize those trade-offs so you can deal with them as they occur. Okay, so the first thing I want to talk about here um, is hierarchical versus horizontal movement. So vertical hierarchies versus a more egalitarian kind of collective. Okay, social movements actually vary enormously. At one end of the social movement, you might have one organization directing the movement with a strict hierarchy. So for example, labor unions have representatives on a local, state, and national level. And at the other extreme, you have movements that are super decentralized, horizontal structure, very egalitarian. They're like many of movements that are primarily organized over the internet. So I'm just going to briefly run through how these different structures might help or hinder the movement. And I just want to point out that the choice of structure is in and of itself, also a strategic choice. Okay, why is this the case? Um, first of all, this is because organizational structure has a signaling effect, not just a logistical one. And many of these social movements um, that have emerged, including student movements and environmental movements, radical feminist movements and anti-nuclear movements, um, a lot of these movements thought it was very important to avoid bureaucratic organization. And this is because organizations are more than a means of achieving a goal. They serve a signaling function and that these movements usually want to signal that they are egalitarian in more than just their goal and that the new institutions they want to create are radically different from the old institutions. So Occupy Wall Street, for example, which is an anti-capitalist movement, specifically um, and deliberately went for a very egalitarian kind of structure in order to in order to um, provide another criticism of the very same structures they were fighting against. So it's very important to note that organizational structures also have signaling effects in this sense. Um, Okay, so a more, but, but what are some benefits we might have if we have a more vertical organizational structure? A vertical organizational structure, meaning you have lots of bureaucracy, you have fixed positions, you probably have full-time employees dedicated to things like fundraising and lobbying. This kind of structure might actually be really helpful in helping you advance a unified message, push for political action, and intervene directly in the political process. Why is this the case? Um, it's because if you are vertically organized, you, you are just likely to be better at accumulating financial resources. Um, you probably have more physical and professional capacities because you can hire strategic experts, you can hire people to do organizing for you, and you can hire these people as full-time employees rather than have them work part-time as volunteers. And it's super important to have these kinds of good organizational skills and people to carry out certain tasks because you need these organizational tasks in order for the smooth running of events. 
Uh, and also for lobbying, because lobbying requires trust. And so activists who have full-time workers are usually able to build better relationships with groups rather than groups that have interchanging and part-time volunteers such that you never get a stable lobbying or fundraising network set up. Non-professionalized volunteer organizations also usually have fewer resources and they, they will just have trouble sustaining their movements over a long period of time because volunteers have other kinds of commitments and it's not just whether they have the money to commit, it's also whether they have the time and mental energy to commit on top of what else they're already doing in their lives. So for these reasons, there is some evidence to show that social movements with more bureaucracy and more vertical hierarchies might actually be more successful and they are likely to survive for longer as well. Um, Many contemporary liberal feminist groups have actually reproduced organizations with very clear hierarchies and very centralized power. So there are some prominent groups like the National Organization for Women and the Feminist Majority Foundation. These groups have a president, they have a board of directors, they have local chapters, and they have membership fees. So very, very organized, almost like a union kind of labor unions organizational structure. And these organizations seek to intervene directly within political processes and try to bring about social change by intervening in politics and electoral systems. So for example, the National Organization for Women actually has a political action committee which endorses and promotes electoral candidates who are committed to advancing women's rights. And that kind of and that kind of require that kind of action does require that you have sufficient um, membership and that you have sufficient money in order to make your endorsement worthwhile. So it does in some ways necessitate you having the kind of organizational structure that is more hierarchical in nature and a little bit more fixed than more egalitarian structures. Um, it's important to note that the same movement here can also have multiple satellite groups that follow different organizational structures. So for example, um, Slutwalk actually has a number of satellite groups in different cities. So there is Slutwalk Chicago, which prioritizes collective organization, and then Slutwalk Seattle and Slutwalk Melbourne, which have clearer vertical organizational structures with clear, um, with clear electoral mechanisms for people who want to get into organizer positions for those particular committees. Okay. So one concern with vertical hierarchies is that people in those hierarchies, those bureaucrats, might begin to develop an interest in maintaining their organization and their own personal position and status, even if this means imperfectly representing the demands of the organization's constituents or the movement's members. And in addition, more structured and formal hierarchies might end up reproducing societal power structures. So for example, um, labor unions are very, very organized. Their vertical hierarchies are actually quite strict. And women account for less than one third of members in the highest decision-making bodies of unions. And in 2011, only of 43 presidents of union confederations, only four were women. And that's partially because of how electoral mechanisms function. At the point where you have strict electoral mechanisms for everything, the same kinds of biases that we normally see come into play anyway. So your hierarchy might end up looking exactly like the kind of hierarchy in society, which well, which, which might actually defeat the point of your organization, which is trying to fight against those hierarchies. Okay, but compare this to a more horizontal and collective structure, which can, which can actually mobilize pretty well now. 
right? Because most movements can use the internet to build networks and to organize outreach, which also gives them a greater capacity to spread their message, to recruit new members, to organize events, raise funds, and lobby policymakers. All of these things are technically possible, even if you don't have a vertical hierarchy. So that's also something to consider when you are thinking about the kinds of structures that movements choose. Um, I guess at this point, it's useful to point out that, that all movements do require some form of organization. So even movements that are more horizontal do have organization as well. It's just a question of how much organization they have and how strict those hierarchies are. Another question that arises from questions of movement hierarchy is who gets to lead the movement? Okay, so a leader of a movement usually serves as the movement's public face, meaning they are generally seen as the people who speak for the movement. So there are a few considerations here, right? Like, can these leaders actually represent the concerns and lived experiences of the movement? Or do they actually only represent a subsection of the movement or a, a subsection of the identity group? Um, will these leaders be effective in promoting the goal of the movement? Will they provide a safe space for its members? Or will they convince the rest of society that some change needs to occur? Um, is power concentrated in the leader? Or has there been effort in building up the movement such that it can survive even if the leader steps down or is removed from power? So these are some of the questions that movements have to think of as well. And this, these are the questions that we have to grapple with where we're talking about debates about whether or not movements should be more centralized and have a fixed set of goals, or if they should be more decentralized, or even debates that are talking about who the leaders of movements should be. These are all the considerations that you might want to think about in terms of their effectiveness, in terms of the leader's representation, and in terms of the movement's longevity. Because a movement that is only tied to a specific leader is unlikely to be able to continue once the specific leader steps down or chooses to focus on something else instead. So it's very important to think about that when you when you're considering hierarchical versus horizontal movement structures. Okay, the second thing I want to talk about here is the question of who gets to be in the movement. And this question is especially pertinent for identity-based movements. So we've already briefly discussed the need for allies in promoting social change, and many of the same trade-offs mentioned earlier apply here as well. There are two additional things it might be useful to note here. Um, the first is that granting allies a prominent role in the movement runs the risk of centering them and their concerns in the movement, and thus replicating existing social structures and crowding up concerns of the people the movement should probably be focusing on instead. And it also places an extra burden on minorities to carve out and negotiate spaces in movements that are meant to be serving them. So unfair burden there. Uh, second, while the support of allies is useful and in many cases even necessary, there is also a worry that an over-reliance on allies in movements can create a dependency problem, which also removes agency from minority individuals who are now told to rely on the support of their allies in the majority group. So, for example, right, take the he for she movement, which seeks to include um, male allies in the discussion about gender inequality and encourages them to advocate for women's rights. One criticism that was commonly leveled at the he for she movement is that the movement focuses primarily on how men are harmed by gender inequality, which crowds out discussion on how women and gender minorities are harmed to a significantly greater extent and leads to a false equivalency between how both groups are treated. 
So the, because the ways that gender inequality is bad for men is very, very different from the way it's bad for women and other gender minorities. Another criticism of the movement was that it emphasizes women's dependence on men's support, which then reinforces the norms of gender inequality that the movement is arguing against. So as you can see, the question of participation in movements and who gets to speak up really does depend as well on who is crowded out, who we should be listening to instead, and whether or not including allies in movements is effective both for the short-term changes and the long-term changes that the movement wants to see. And you don't want to create a problem where a dip you don't want to create a situation where change only happens the moment majority uh, people that are part of the majority feel inclined to help you. You want to find a way where individuals can be empowered to make change without necessarily depending on other people that shouldn't be dependent upon. Okay, so the last thing I want to talk about, um, which also relates to the question of who can participate in movements, is having local movements versus more national or transnational movements. And the, this is a question of to what extent their divergent goals and contexts can be reconciled with each other. Something to note here that's very important that I feel a lot of debates tend to forget is that local movements in different countries do exist. And I think many debaters tend to overlook these local movements and they just tend to default to the context of the global north instead. There are many local movements that exist all over the world. There are feminist movements in the global south doing excellent grassroots work. So it's really useful to think of those movements as well when you get debates about movements and social justice rather than assuming that all the movements are pretty much the ones that we talk about in North America. Okay, so one argument for more locally specific movements is that local groups best understand the local conditions and recognize how to work with their culture instead of against it. So they often appear less threatening and so they are less likely to be rejected out of hand and their knowledge allows them to build local ownership and buy in for the changes at hand, which paves the way for more sustainable change. So take, for example, um, Islamic feminist movements versus more secular feminist movements. In very religious countries, uh, an Islamic feminist movement is just more likely to be able to make change because it doesn't alienate extremely religious individuals with arguments about how religion is in and of itself oppressive. And it also caters towards the local context. It makes changes within the scope of the religion itself. So it doesn't come off as being a, a colonialist hangover or Western imposition as much as a secular feminist movement would because that looks a lot more threatening to traditionalists. Okay. The other thing to note is that transnational movements may also unwittingly enforce global power differentials when activists from the global north take action on behalf of activists from the global south. So the intervention of transnational movements can also result in weaker movements due to the lack of capacity building on a local level. And there is an there's, there's kind of an upward transfer of agency from people who are affected to the people that are working on their behalf but are not necessarily affected in the same way. And that's something that I think we probably want to avoid for a movement that tries to represent the people that are most badly affected in whatever situation in whatever situation or context we're talking about. Um, more locally specific movements are also important because it's often very difficult to reconcile the goals of various different groups within a larger movement. 
sort of give an example of this. Uh, the entry of women into the workplace in the global north um, has prompted an increased demand for care workers who are usually women from the global south. So this actually creates a condition where migrant care workers need to leave their families and children behind in their home countries and travel to the global north to work under potentially exploitative conditions. So I'm not saying that the situation for migrant care workers is is absolutely bad because there are some benefits to it as well. But I'm just using this example to show that there are trade-offs between different groups of people and that a global feminist movement is unlikely to be able to address these trade-offs satisfactorily because they are somewhat in tension for each, with each other, right? Because a global North feminist movement that pushes for more inclusion of women into the workplace has created the kinds of conditions that cause global South women to become migrant care workers with all of the attendant um, precarity that entails. So that's pretty important to note. It might just be more useful to have local movements that focus on uh, each group's specific concerns rather than trying to have one transnational movement because the concerns faced by each group of people is just so different from each other. It's just going to be very difficult to reconcile. Okay, so another example might be the conflicting goals of religious feminists who want to work within their religion and secular feminists who argue that all religion is oppressive or maybe white feminists who advocate for harsher policing and feminists of color who oppose this. So even within the feminist movement, which is what I'm using as an example here, you can see there are already so many conflicts and tensions between different groups of women. So having one overarching movement actually just seems um, super impossible because of the conflicting demands that this will entail. On the other hand, the presence of transnational social movements can be super helpful to local movements because they can provide local movements with access to financial assistance, uh, technical and organizational expertise, media exposure and public recognition. All of these things can be especially useful for newly formed activist groups who might find it helpful to gain greater exposure through various organizing techniques and social networks. And in addition, um, transnational social movements might also be able to apply external pressure on behalf of local activist groups. So in certain contexts, external pressure may even be the prerequisite for local mobilization and psychological empowerment of individuals such that they feel they can even mobilize in the first place. So ideally, external pressure leads to the production of political opportunities, meaning international pressure on the state forces the state to make certain concessions, which can then be exploited if there is a parallel development in local mobilization. So I think the best case scenario in these instances is that there is a lot of coordination between local movements and transnational movements in order to produce the best outcome for everyone. Because while transnational movements are able to support local movements in terms of logistics and resources, they often are un unable to work within local contexts or they might be unaware of the context on the ground. So diverting these resources to local movements is just more likely to um, help these local movements succeed and the local movements can then work within their culture or within their local context in order to create buy-in and build sustainable change. So some quick final thoughts about movements before I wrap off. Um, movements are all different, meaning that each movement that pops up has its own set of priorities, has its own group of people that they want to empower, has its own 
decision-making calculus about how much they want to trade off effectiveness with protection for their movement. And that's fine. But it's just very important to note that when you are making arguments about these movements, always consider what the trade-off is, not just in the short term, but also in the long term. And remember that all of the questions that we talked about today do apply to a broad section of movements. They just need to be tailored to specifically address whichever movement you are debating about. So I hope that was helpful. Um, I will take questions now as soon as I figure out how to um, access questions or see questions. Hello? Uh, can we ask questions in here? Yes, you can ask questions in here. Great. Uh, so, given the fact that there is a huge disparity between the feminist narrative itself, how beneficial it would be for you to pinpoint specific group within the feministic narratives, uh, if you are in the prop case, I mean, if you are saying that, um, for instance, I, I, I cannot think of any specific motion in this case, but um, how it would be better? For, I mean, how would it be better for you to choose one or certain specific uh, point, which would not be, uh, I don't know, from which you can actually make greater uh, lines of argumentation? Gotcha. Um, so, if I understood the question correctly, it was something like, um, how can you? create some kind of consistent characterization given that there are so many competing narratives right yes okay um so so this is difficult um but i think what you want to focus on is the goals that they all have in common so generally if you're talking about a debate about a feminist movement you want to think about the empowerment of women and you can think about this in a number of different spheres you can think about this um economically. So this looks like uh, accessing jobs, right? Uh, allowing women to go to work in some countries, uh, wage gaps, uh, biases, promotions, things like that, everything that has to do with economic empowerment. You can look at political empowerment, which in some countries might look like giving women the right to vote. In other countries might look like getting more female leaders. You can look at questions of safety and security. In some countries might mean doing things like Criminal, criminalizing uh, spousal abuse, which still isn't a thing in many countries. And in other countries, it might look like getting more justice for victims of sexual harassment. So even though the specific concerns within each country are different, you can generally speak of some themes that are, that are, um, that the feminist movement tries to advance, which will be ideas of economic um, equality, political equality, and safety. Does that help? Yes. Okay. Okay. So I, I have a couple of questions here, which I am going to um, read out loud and then answer. So the first question I got is the question that, can you give an example of successful peaceful protests that achieve their goals. Uh, yes, actually, there are some successful peaceful protests that have achieved their goals, and quite a lot of them actually also um, centered women, which is very interesting because normally we think that, um, because normally, okay, 
um, which is very interesting because normally we don't always think of the role of the role that women play in protests that are not specific to um, that are not specific to feminism. So to give you a couple of examples here, um, in the 70s, there was this protest called the, um, sorry, let me just um, make sure I've got the name correct. There was this protest called Mothers of the Plaza de Mayo, which was an, a, a mother's protest against the military rule in Argentina. So it was a bunch of middle-aged women who were protesting for the disappearance of their sons and arguing that the regime should make sure that their sons were safe first and foremost. And the mother's weekly marches to protest, which were actually very peaceful, um, spearheaded popular resistance that then helped topple the regime. Um, there were also solidarity labor movements um, there are also a lot of like labor movements and labor strikes that have involved women to quite significant extents. Most of these were peaceful and did lead to uh, changes in labor laws or led to companies agreeing to the demands brought by those specific peaceful protests. Um, so yeah, quite a number of uh, peace protests that are peaceful have been successful as well. There is some empirical research that shows the moment you get um, 3.5% of the population participating, um, your, your protest is overwhelmingly likely to succeed. Um, I think this was a paper written by Chenoweth, so you can also look that up for more examples of peaceful protests that actually worked out quite well. Okay, so second question is, how do you make rights claims, for instance, non-contingent? In debates where you are talking about violence as a right, how do you defend against the opposition claim that violence enables the state to further harm and reduce the rights of the group. Okay, so this, so so when we were talking about self-defense as a right just now, um, it was it was already non-contingent on the outcome, right? Like a lot of the way we talked ways we talked about this right to self-defense was just by pointing out that if you are attacked, you have a right to defend yourself because if not, your life will be in danger. And I think the analogy you want to draw here, in order to respond to this op argument, is just by pointing out. Maybe the person that is trying to attack you as an individual just has overwhelming force and is going to win anyway. But it's absolutely immoral to say that because the person coming after you has overwhelming force, you should just roll over and accept your fate. Like if somebody came after me with the intent to murder me and it's just very likely that person's going to succeed because he has a gun and I don't, um, that's not a reason to say I don't have a right to self-defense. It's just saying my self-defense may not be very successful, but I still have a right to defend myself and hope for the chance that it will actually succeed against whatever overwhelming force is brought against me. So I think a similar response in this situation, um, similar response in this situation will answer to that op claim. Okay. Do I have any sources or references for more details? Yes, so I mentioned an author just now and a paper and I'm going to look up the name of that um, so you guys can have a look. Okay. So the author is called Erica Chenoweth, which I am typing into the Zoom chat right now. Um, and uh, Erica Chenoweth has done quite a bit of research on nonviolent protests and how they work to change um, and how they work to change the incentives of states. And it was her research that shows the moment you get 3.5%, you are overwhelmingly likely to succeed. Um, 
at the moment, I have no other books about protests to recommend. I'm sorry, but there is quite a lot of good material online about the efficacy of various protest movements. And especially given the context, there is a lot of discussion ongoing right now about the right to use violence compared to the effectiveness of using violence as a strategy. Okay, um, I, I feel like that is all the questions that I have received at the moment. Um, so I am happy to hand back to Astana. And thank you for this session. Thank you, for hey, thank you a lot for the workshop. I think it's really thank good. Much. That was really useful. Thank you so much yeah. for having me. That was great.